My name is Alicia Mario Vieira. Today we're going to be talking about history of Venezuela and Cuba. Um, I'm going to start off with Cuba. So I want to give some context about Cuba before, like, before explaining how my parents and how my mom, or how my mom and how my dad had to get or had to get here um, to the U.S. So. Yeah. Yeah, and I so think that's good because I think our histories kind of in like intertwine at yeah. some point in contemporary times. So it's good that you're starting off. Yeah, yeah. So it predominantly my mom and my dad came here during the Castro regime. Um, but before we before we even get to the Castro regime, there's like a whole hit there's like a whole history of Cuba that like shows that the country since its independence in 1902 had so much continuous instability throughout the 20th century um so yeah uh for example after its independence in 1902 cuba experienced a period of significant uh instability during number of revolts co-ops and a period of u.s military occupation um this was very prominent during the Fulgencio Baltista presidency, um, which he actually uh, became president twice. Um, during World War One, he was president, and then during um, World War Two, he became president again. Um, so, yeah. So during his presidency, in um, after seizing the power in 1952, of a in a military co-op and canceling the 1952 elections, he just decided, hey, I'm going to become president. Um, and everybody was in agreement with him um, he, because he had a lot of uh, political and military backing with him. So uh, the country just came into agreement with that. Um, so Batista overall proved far more di dictatorial and indifferent to popular concerns. Um, while Cuba remained plagued by, for example, while Cuba play, well, remained plagued by high unemployment and limited water infrastructures, Batista antagonized the population by forming lucrative links to organized crime and allowing American companies to dominate the Cuban economy, especially the sugarcane plantations and other local resources. My family owns sugarcane plantations in Venezuela. Really? Yep. Would, do you want to expand on that? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so basically, um, my grandpa started working at 16 years old. He was he came from poverty. So at 16 years old, he started working um, for farmers. He was a farmer. Um, and I think his story is really inspiring in a sense, because at such a young age, he started working and dedicated himself to that. And you know, slowly over time from working on the plantation, from working on the um, fields, he kind of got a nick of like the business side of it. So, you know, he already knew kind of the agricultural aspect of what it takes to run a farm, to run um, a large plot of land. But then slowly as he got older, he got more involved with the the business side of it and um as you know he he worked um for the plantation he got connections my my grandpa was literally like 
he was so popular. Everyone loved him. So he slowly worked his way to the top. And then we he opened up his own plantation. And from there, um, I think my family had the one of like the like the fifth largest sugarcane productions in Venezuela. So it's really inspiring to see how a 16 year old boy man like worked his way up and managed to be one of the biggest manufacturers for domestic sugarcane use. And yeah, I think a lot of it had to do with um, connections and just knowing the right people and having like a natural talent for business and that entrepreneurial aspect of it. And yeah, my my grandpa, he was like a very well-known and loved man in Barquisimeto, which is like where my family's from. And that's the little little backstory on him. Super cool, super cool. Okay. So so you know, going back to um Batista. Cuba. Yeah, going to yes. Cuba and Batista. He also had a lot of uh, government scandals and pervasive corruption, which which included like undermining judiciary court decisions, uh, yeah. fraud and bribery amongst Cuban officials and legislators, even a rise in illegal gambling amongst military officials. Um, this uh, I I like I, I would I really want to refer I really like this reference from um, a Latin American scholar named Frank Argote Freyer points out that um, Cuban population during this time had a high tolerance for corruption. Cubans knew and criticized those who were corrupt, but also admired them for their ability to act as, as I quote, criminals with impunity. Um, so yeah, the, the time, that, that time era was pretty, it was pretty bad, um, which result, which eventually just resent, um, ended up in um, rebellion against Bautista's presidency trying to bring down his regime because he was very dictatorial and he started, he cut down many, um, he just started cutting down the country, the yeah. economy from, from every possible aspect to the economy, to the social aspect, the social political. So that came to the rise of the Castro regime uh, or like, you know, before the Castro regime, Castro was in agreement to bring down the Bautista um, regime and and so he actually led multiple attacks in the 60s and 70s. He led multiple attacks, which failed many times, but he actually managed to get a, get away and live. But his, his because he, he was expecting like a backing from people. Uh, he was expecting the whole, like the whole population to just kind of join in with the revolution that he was trying to um, make against Bautista's regime to bring it down. Um, and for for some time it, it it didn't happen, but then eventually the people people started picking up on it, and they actually started backing him up. Um, he even uh, Castro even got some support from other other uh, neighboring countries to actually uh, bring down the Batista regime, like the U.S. The U.S. eventually recognized that what like they were actually. In, um, they were working with Bautista for a little bit, but then they realized that he was also in the wrong. So Roosevelt ended yeah. up Roosevelt ended up going um, also supporting the revolution and bringing down uh, the Bautista regime. And so then Castro rose to power that way. 
he was fairly supported. He made a lot of promises to the people and he loved his people. But when he came into power and he actually became a president, he started to shut down. Like he, like to a certain extent he was good or, and he did some good things for the people, but then he eventually just started manipulating his power, bringing back the corruption that he first uh, was trying to take down. Um, he started censoring the press and the media and creating anti-communist campaigns, uh, suppressing the opposition with violence, torture and public executions, but, or that's so that, or so the people yeah. thought, or so the people thought, but. Uh, I think, yeah. Um, I think it's interesting to note because I think the history of both countries um, are kind of similar in the sense of when Chavez rose to power, I believe he was elected in 1998 when he rose to power, um, he did make a lot of promises to the lower class, um, which entailed, you know, distribution of wealth, distribution of land and resources. And I think those countries have such a large disparity in wealth and you see it um in the cities like in caracas you see these skyscrapers um and right next to them are los barrios which are basically where um the lower class lives which are quote unquote like shanty towns like towns made out of like wood like houses made out of like aluminum um just no running water no medical services. So I think the wealth disparity and that promise to redistribute the wealth was something super, um, super persuasive towards the lower class. And that's how both these entities gained so much support from them. And I think both of them start off in a similar sense that once elected, they did fulfill some promises, did redistribute some resources. And I think personally, um, you know, these people in power in, in my case, or in Venezuela's case, I should say, Chavez, he just, you know, it started off with those promises, which he began to fulfill. But during that time, Venezuela was in time of like economic prosperity. And it's really easy to fulfill promises when your country's doing good. And I think one of the biggest things that people um, don't realize or would like to blame the downfall on Venezuela, they would like to blame it on quote unquote socialist policies. But I think a lot of people um, don't realize that Venezuela's economy is not really diversified. It was very much dependent on oil. So when oil prices drop, the whole country seems to shut down. So I think once oil prices started um, dropping, then that's when, you know, cutting back other other aspects of the economy to support these social programs, that, that was kind of the downfall paired with mismanagement paired with then authoritarianism just brought 
the country into like the shambles it is now. And obviously there's way more going into that, but I think they're very intertwined in like how it started and then the promises that was given to like the lower class. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think Castro did similar things, um, but he didn't take, uh, or like, you know, he took advantage of those um, desires of the people of the, of the lower class um, and then just kind of turned his back on them in a sense. Yeah. And likewise, in the sense of, you know, you mentioned propaganda. Um, yeah, trying to censor um, anything anti-communist. Yeah. yeah, trying to censor the opposition. That yeah, is censor, also very prevalent yeah, yeah. In, in Venezuela. Um, I was speaking actually with my professor today that many news stations sponsored by the state have a lot of anti-U.S. Um, sentiment basically blaming like the U.S. for the humanitarian crisis, the economic crisis, the hyperinflation going on in Venezuela. And those channels are the only channels that um, people in poverty have access to. So I think till, till this day, the majority of Venezuelans in the lower class to some extent believe that the U.S. played a large role in the economic downfall or the humanitarian crisis, which it's a very complex issue because, you know, the U.S. did place sanctions on, on Venezuela due to the authoritarian regime. Whether, whether that was right or wrong, you would have people from both, both aspects, like people can argue that it was wrong because the sanctions really only really don't benefit anyone. Like it really just affects the poor people, affects like normal people. It doesn't affect the regime. Like obviously like the sanctions that the, U ha the U.S. has had on Venezuela hasn't affected the regime in terms of like it's still there but then other people are like well if you don't have these sanctions then like how are you like speaking in an international system that you're against authoritarianism and so you kind of have that debate going on but I think currently um a lot of at least in the lower class there is still a lot of anti-US sentiment like right now American citizens are not allowed to go to Venezuela like you can't enter with an American passport and there is a lot of things in place to prevent that and again with like the censoring and propaganda and all of that combined just makes it a very interesting socio-political country to keep an eye on. Yeah those have been some pretty important like interesting facts from both our perspectives both our countries perspectives um i think uh, the way i want to conclude this is just kind of like how now that we have a little bit of more of understanding of our my cuban history i i, I since like the start i wanted to connect uh how my mom and my dad's side came here so because of the cash regime and because of all these issues occurring in the country and all the rebellion and all the 
uh, all the all the issues, all those issues. Um, so in the 1980s, I'm gonna talk about my mom's side. So in the 1980s, the Marie Bolift was um, was allowed by Castro. It was an agreement with Castro and the U.S. president at the time. Um, and so these people were gonna. These people were called los Marielitos. It was a six-month period in the 1980s where a mass of Cubans immigrated to the U.S. or neighboring countries in pursuit of higher standards of living, as the Castro regime plummeted. You know, as we know already, Cuba's economy, political system. Um, and then my dad's side was in 1994. Or my dad came in 1994 during the Cuban rafter crisis. Um, which was the fourth wave of Cuban immigration that lasted 22 years in the U.S. It basically was a time period where Cubans would build these makeshift rafts and set sail to the U.S. and other neighboring countries in order to escape the Castro regime. Uh, these people, including my dad, are known as balseros to this day. This opportunity, however, ended in 2017 in the United States when the wet feet, dry feet policy was closed. And so, yeah, and that's, that's why I'm here. Dad. Yeah, that's why I'm here. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and that's how Oscar is. <laughs> um, my so my dad still lives in Minnesota, so he he still oh. lives there. Yeah. Um, I think I might have like touched up on this on the previous um episode, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, he still lives there. He works there. He's a surgical oncologist there. Yeah. So, so he. Mom, so the country allowed people to just kind of still like fly out of the country if they had like the money like how do you how, oh no because like your mom came during before the country went into turmoil or like yeah I mean my mom um we moved here when I was relatively young yeah that was before um, I mean Chavez was in power but it was before I would say everything kind of went to like the large downfall yeah. um but there is like there's still flights that go out of venezuela it's um it's basically like a lot of people just can't afford it because it's in dollars right now and since there's hyperinflation dollars are really expensive yeah. um and so venezuelans are allowed to travel they just also need a, they need to apply for a visa to leave the country so there is barriers there to limit um, the amount of travel there is, but travel is very possible, um, especially if you have dollars. Because that currently most people and most businesses in Venezuela are actually using dollars because our currency, El Bolivar, is so inflated that it's literally worth nothing like at all. So you would never see someone carrying like a stack or in this point, like probably like a suitcase, like full of bolivares when you can just carry like a dollar instead. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, my, like my mom moved here when she was relatively young. Um, and my mom has already like previously had a lot of experiences in the U S um, she did a master's program in Fordham university in New York, my dad did one year, it was like a residential program for medicine in New York as well. Um, So my parents had had the opportunity to have like some engagement with the US before my mom moved here. Um, But I think 
you know, I do come from a place of privilege and economic privilege that my, like, grandpa's business has provided my family. And so I think my story is not the generic story of most people in Venezuela. So I think it is important to recognize that most people can't just jump on a plane and just fly here. Yeah. Because that's not, that's not really realistic and it's not an option for a lot of people. Um, in terms of my dad, he still lives there because he he's a doctor. So he says, like, if I wasn't a doctor, I wouldn't be anything else. Like, I couldn't live. He's really dramatic. Um, that's where I got it from. <laughs> just kidding. Mm-hmm. Sorry, dad. Um, but I think I learned more about uh, the insecurity of Venezuela through my father and through revisiting my father during those years um, because it did get bad or I think the worst it was was like during like my preteen teenage phases and I actually did visit Venezuela in those stages and saw kind of the insecurity, the instability in person and saw it develop over time because I would go back every year to visit my father. So my mom would always say like, the Venezuela you know now is not the Venezuela I grew up with. Venezuela used to be a country of immigrants. And talking to my professor today, he was telling me that when he studied in Venezuela over the summer, he stayed living with a Greek family, then, than an Arab family, than like all these immigrants in Venezuela because it was a place of economic prosperity and where people started their lives. And I think it's really ironic um, contextualizing Venezuela and how it is now, where it's like most, my mom says like Venezuela, Venezuelans are everywhere but Venezuela, which is obviously not true. Like there's obviously some of us left in Venezuela, but it just speaks to the extent of us trying to leave and how um, the dictatorship made so many people flee their home country, which also happened in Cuba. Correct. So, yeah, so there's a lot of Cubans as well here in the U.S., especially in the in the area where I, I was born and I lived in for 20 years of my life. Um, Hialeah. which is ironically, or like, you know, as we mentioned before, it's the capital, the um, in quote capital of Cuba. I have, so I have a funny story. Days. I have oh, a funny okay. story that we can end with. Okay. I'm going to call out my, my little brother, Federico. My mom, my mom asked him when we were young, like he was probably like five or six and my mom asked do you know what the capital of Cuba is and he goes Miami (laughs) and I think that speaks volumes (laughs) so yeah yeah it's pretty funny yeah yeah anyways so that that concludes our podcast podcast. oh my gosh at the same time that's so cute (laughs) okay (laughs) Thank y'all. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this 
little historical ramble. Thank y'all. See y'all later.